Typically, these things are not uncommon and they're not specific only to China. They're also, you know, evident in place in the European Union, in the United States and in other parts of the world. There is a, certainly a heightened risk with regards to data and protection worldwide and in China in particular. I think China just sort of is on the radar because of this being the, the country du jour as far as who to kind of uh, blame with what's going on in the world today. It does really increase the unpredictability in that regard. Hopefully this can really improve in its uh, transparency and uh, more details will be uh, there to work out because after all, all businesses need predictability. First, uh, make sure you have good local representation and advisors, preferably partners who you understand and who understand you and who understand China. Leave your politics at home and leave Chinese politics alone. Uh, don't come here expecting the old uh, shady business practices. Uh, stay on the right side of uh, propriety in the law. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to The Chat Lounge. I'm Tuyun, joining our discussion on whether there is rising risk for foreign business people traveling to China or Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University. Dr. Liu Baocheng, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics at University of International Business and Economics. And Edward Lehman, Founder and Managing Director of China-based law firm Lehman Li and Shi. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. So China's business environment is again being placed under the spotlight. And a report carried by the Wall Street Journal quoted some uh, security advisors as saying foreign executives traveling to China face more risks now than before COVID-19 because of the revised anti-espionage law and recent law enforcement actions against some um, consulting firms. So some quick mini poll. Ed, you are the managing director of your law firm, Lehman Lee and Xi, which also provides consulting services. Have you received any inquiries in this regard? Do you share the concern? Well, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think the reports of the death of, um, you know, business in China because of security risks is uh, is Mark Twain, which they just summarize is 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 greatly exaggerated. I mean, what we've seen with the DSL, which is a, a digital security law, the cyber security law, the the uh, PIPL, the people, um, th these different the Privacy Act, is we've seen an increase, obviously, in in legal work and how to deal with those things, but. Typically, these things are not uncommon and they're not specific only to China. Mm. They're also, you know, evident in, in, in place in the European Union, in the United States and in other parts of the world. So, I mean, there is a, certainly a heightened risk with regards to uh, data and protection worldwide and in China in particular. I think China just sort of is on the radar because of this being the, the soup, the, the country du jour as far as who to kind of um, um, blame with what's going on in the world today. So 
Um, you know, as, as Karl Marx said, I guess history repeats itself first as tragedy and then second as farce. And so, I mean, you know, I was certainly here during the martial law from 1989 to 1993. They were talking about security risks going on at that point in time. And, um, you know, business got started and got going and things got uh, got sorted out back then. Mm-hmm. And I also think, uh, you know, it's a concern, but it's not a deal killer, certainly. I've seen things are happening and, and more positive than ever before. Mm, so certainly you, in the last three years. Right. You're saying it's a common practice and um, foreign business people don't have to worry about it. So, Bao yeah. Chung, um, what's your first reaction to the Wall Street Journal report? Has any foreign business people you know expressed concerns over increasing risks? Well, on the positive note, it does show that... Uh, uh, there is uh, increasing attractiveness of the Chinese business environment in terms of trade and investment and technology licensing, etc. Uh, because uh, if people do not really have any interest in doing business with China, you know, however tough the law, it won't really matter. And on the negative note is that it does really increase the unpredictability in that regard, uh, one is that uh, this law uh, does really expand over the uh, 2017 version. Uh, the scope of uh, the uh, espionage in the definition, and it does also land the more uh, freewheeling type of uh, investigative powers over the security people. So that really is a uh, spooky sign to many of those uh, who are engaged in doing business with China. It's not only for people to travel into China, but it identifies organizations, agents, individuals, and everywhere. As long as they are engaged in the espionage work, they will be subject to the investigation and uh, possibly the penalty under uh, this law. Uh, More controversially would be that a is this law in reaction towards the uh, U.S. operation against the Chinese businesses and individuals, or mm. is it something that is there to to serve as a long-term the apparatus for this country? So, uh, because it does remind that uh, when we really promulgated the antitrust law or anti-monopoly law, that was more in reaction towards the U.S the anti-monopoly scrutiny against China. Mm. So hopefully, so this can really improve in its uh, transparency and uh, more details will be uh, there to work out because after all, all businesses need predictability. So it's not really the law that really matters, but uh, it's really the certainty and predictability of the business environment that they're going to protect so that's something very important. Mm, and uh, Bao Chung, you're saying it's it, it could be politically motivated. Um, Joseph, what's your view there? Well, I think it's rather complicated. On the one hand, I do agree that it is a, a radical expansion, and mm. you know I think most analysts concur with this. the The uncertainty lies in the fact that we don't really know 
how aggressive, because it has such a wide scope and it's really difficult to tell what is espionage. If you are doing market research, if you are doing due diligence related to, you know, whatever you want to do in terms of your economic activities. Uh, but even if you're a journalist or an academic and you're simply uh, trying to collect information, there's not a clear sense of what constitutes, you know, spying or collecting information or surveillance versus merely doing the, the sort of work that is uh, typical in a market economy and above all, a market economy that is uh, global uh, like China's aims to be uh, with uh, high rates of foreign investment and, and foreign trade. So there are, there are significant concerns. Now, I think it is fair to ask the question uh, because I, I've read the, the law mm-hmm. and uh, the detailed implementations uh, Uh, all 71 plus articles of one and 26 articles of the other. Uh, And if you haven't read those sorts of laws before, it's very stark, it's it's very frightening. But uh, I don't think most Americans or or people from Europe have read their own laws. The Chinese law reads quite a bit like what you would find in, in US law. Or if you look at the requirements that are being asked on visa applications, they're they're no less than what you would have to provide on an F1 Indeed. application. So, you know, is it reciprocity to a large extent? Is it boilerplate? Did they start with, you know, what's happening in terms of uh, uh, Western laws? But I think the, the key concern here is that, um, and this is the term that we keep using in my field, and, and I'm sure others, is that there's this increasing trend of securitization. And the concern is that there's uh, this trend does not know an end point. It tends to sort of feed upon itself and and keep moving forward in ways that um, become ever more restrictive or fear-mongering. And I'm not saying that's happening here, but it's a concern. And it's particularly a concern because, uh, you know, the broader trend of uh, U.S.-China relations uh, has a very dark cloud over it. And, and even, you know, some people worried that it may be headed to some sort of open conflict in the next few years. So it would be normal in that type of environment, whether we see it in this country or another country or in different periods of time, to see increasing securitization, increasing concerns about espionage. And that would be what I'm worried about here. Just just to follow on in in this, uh, what Joseph was saying earlier, I mean, I'm old enough and recall very clearly when People were making a B1 or B2 application to from the United I mean, from China to go to the United States. Uh, you know, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I mean, I'm old enough, certainly, that one of the prerequisite questions when I entered the Illinois bar, which is the first uh, bar that I, you know, was admitted to, uh, I was asked that same question, and 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 that, interestingly enough, was a question that's been asked since the McCarthy era in the 1950s. And so, I mean, these types of things about asking questions and what Joseph had said earlier, on an F-1 visa, a lot of this stuff is a ground that is covered. I think where we're in sort of a brave new world is that it's almost like they would talk about the Stasi, uh, you know, pre-German reunification. They said, hey, you know, with the Stasi folks, you know, you don't have to wait for them to come. They're already inside your house. I mean, meaning that technology, that there was such a a broad amount of people that were in the German, East German secret police that they were typically, there'd at least be one in your household. So, I mean, but the same can be said with regards to technology. At the same time, in a real world example, we 
where most people don't understand where China has typically been the workshop of the world with the increase in, I mean, with uh, with low labor costs, which is not necessarily true right now, but with the increase with uh, in financial services, they're they're allowing um, you know foreign related companies to be able to participate with the telecommunications providers mm-hmm. to be able to have data and information and, and apply for it ahead of time. So what appears in this Wall Street Journal article to be dark and increase in uh, anti-espionage laws, you know, there's also this kind of light spots with regards to what's actually happening in a practical standpoint. And I can also say another thing from a legal perspective, and this is where Americans get a little bit lost. The China Civil Code is based on the German Code of 1896. That's kind of the example and where it's sort of a science. It's it's sort of a form over function. We in the United States and in, in the uh, five eyes where there's common law, you have case law, which kind of helps with interpretation and it's sort of more open in that interpretation and judicial interpretation becomes law in and of itself. And so if you do like Joseph did, you read through those laws, it's very difficult when they first come out to actually figure out how the heck to enforce these laws, policies and regulations. And I, I would suggest with Dr. Leo's example, that um, you know that the regulators themselves are coming out to try to figure out what what's it all about and what where are the borders themselves. It's not necessarily a kind of a huge uh, negative thing or a conspiratorial thing mm. with regards to these laws, in right. my opinion. I, yeah, I remember uh, when I applied for a U.S. visa in 2019, I also needed to fill up this um, questionnaire or the form with the information whether I was a party member and all sorts of information regarding my parents or things like that. So um, talking about visa applications, according to the report, under the law, visa applicants will have to go through a more detailed and what the security advisor called more intrusive visa application process. And um, it says applicants will need to answer questions about their travel plans or employment history, including whether they have worked for a foreign government and their views on sensitive political issues, details of their children, parents, including their occupation and home addresses. I think, well, from the information you provided, um, both um, Ed and uh, Joseph, I think all these seem very, very usual or common, right? So, Ed, as a business, sorry, as a lawyer, and um, to some extent, I can call you a businessman, right? Um, (laughs) Traveling, you know, between the two countries very often. Um, Can you, or do you actually understand the timing China introduced uh, this revised law? Why does it have to come up with the revised version now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's absolutely positively imperative that they come up with that because they're filling out the finding those parameters themselves within the data that's being collected by individual businesses and by individuals. And whether that's going to be uh, you know positive for them or negative for them as a government trying to manage things. Same with AI. I mean, are we going to uh, and, and there are laws on AI that have come out with China with regards to these automated response programs. So it's one of those things where I think it's good that they're getting in front of it, but it's, as they say in uh, in The Tempest from Shakespeare, a brave new world, Ophelia, as far as where we're entering. And to try to legislate, knowing, trying to know what all the variables are 
when we really don't know where the technology is going to take us is a very difficult thing. So I think lawmakers in China, which is different than the United States, they've actually rolled out and asked us, I mean, in the legal community and the foreign business community with the chambers of commerce, they've actually asked us for input. So, I mean, you don't necessarily see that. You see that they've closed down Cap Vision or you see that they've closed down uh, Bain and Company, but they don't tell you that they're actually seeking solicitation mm. from business folks that have been here for a long time or for a short period of time. You know, it, how does this impact your business? And and they're and they're having a look see. But certainly, as Joseph alluded to, I think we've got geopolitical developments, and that's undergone significant shifts in recent years, and and certainly in the last three plus years with with the COVID and whatnot, which has increased security uh, and scrutiny and potential tensions between at least the United States and Australia and some other countries in China, certainly. And this can ab absolutely impact the perception of security risks associated with travel to certain regions. And, you know, I think that that's heightened things. And I think right now people are coming, you know, are, are just listening to the crowd. Okay. And I can tell you one thing that I see, at least with my clients, and it's not discussed in the Wall Street Journal article or all over the place, which is you may enter with most countries, not most, but I mean, the majority of countries, I would say, you know, that have relations with China in a, within, you know, 42 hours or 144 hours or 72 hours, you can enter visa free. So, I mean, people who are going to parachute in are able to come in visa free into China, contrary to the popular belief, and be able to come here for board meetings or do whatever it is they want to do without having to go through all this kind of crazy scrutiny. So, you know, of course we want to discuss all that, but there are really practical workarounds that people don't like to talk about, which makes sense. I mean, obviously these are, you know, coming into Beijing or Shanghai or Shenzhen and those types of places, but as a practical measure, it's not like the whole world stopping here for these new laws. You're listening to The Chat Lounge. We'll be back right after this. Podcast of CGTN Radio. Go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. Welcome back. You're listening to the Chat Lounge, and we're discussing whether there is rising risks for foreign business people traveling to China after the introduction of the revised anti-espionage law in July. The U.S. State Department has placed China on its uh, reconsider travel list, citing the risk of um, detention or arbitrary enforcement of local laws. And this um, U.S.-based consulting firm cited by the Wall Street Report also says if you worked for the U.S. government in the past and you had interaction with China over the last 20 years, you, you should question whether you should go back. If you can be perceived as an intelligence asset of any kind, you simply shouldn't get on the plane. Why do I have this feeling that it's talking about you, Ed? Um, so <laughs> do you expect business people would follow the advice uh, by the U.S. State Department? You know, I mean, I've seen these warnings over the years. I've seen, like I said, in 1989 and 1993, it was that we were under martial law. Certainly, I mean, the, these 
you know, there's been uh, there were times in, in where Sarajevo where there was a bombing of the Chinese embassy. I remember that very clearly. There were, you know, protests that were happening. I mean, uh, we were in the international club at the time. The U.S. embassy was was down the street, essentially, at that not where it is now, but that moved there in 2008. But this was previous to that. And, you know, it was interesting because there were all sorts of protests which caused the imagination of the media at the time, but they were very well orchestrated and it was quite safe, actually. You know, they were parking big buses at the International Club, which is where our law office was located at the time, owned by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And and, and folks were very orderly going over to protests against the English-speaking nations, which were kind of close to each other at that point in time, the British consulate and the embassy and the U.S. embassy. So I kind of take all that stuff with a grain of salt. I mean, I'm in these meetings constantly with these trade associations that are talking about burner phones and the 007 kind of stuff, mm. and that you need to throw away your computer once you've entered China. I mean, I think it's a lot of hype, quite frankly. I think that, you know, that that exists today online where people can get in touch with your computer, get control of your camera without having to even enter the country. So I think there's a lot of hype here. I think it works really well to scare people and it works well at trying to vilify China and and, and to cloud and mis- make it all mysterious as to how to do business here, which it shouldn't be. And then that's been the whole thing with my career is to try to make it more transparent and more friendly and more acceptable to do business in this place. I mean, and deal with all the positive things that have happened in this country, um, you know, since the opening uh, to the outside. Mm, But uh, this revised law is to some people mind-boggling, right? So maybe some businesses will have to review their business here in China again and maybe make some adjustment to their business portfolios. So, um, Baocheng, as a professor of economics, how do you expect it to affect foreign investment in China? Yeah, there is a level of uh, a contradiction that we have been talking about within our think tanks uh, to the Chinese policymakers, is that uh, on one hand, we do uh, want to invite more foreign businesses to invest in China and doing trade with China under such a critical situation for the Chinese economic recovery. On the other hand, we need to tighten the national security consideration given the geopolitical tensions going on and also given the technological advancement uh, in the data transmission, etc. So how we can really find the right type of balance without compromising on the national security, but continue to boost the Chinese vitality for attraction of the global business. So this is really a very tough strategic work. So one way here is really to train uh, actually the investigative forces, how they can really be more informed to make the right type of judgment, whether it's critical or non-critical, sensitive or non-sensitive, the data or projects or individuals, etc., so that uh, they won't be there simply to harass the people who are doing normal businesses. Uh, that's one thing. The other is that uh, for international businesses, individuals, organizations, they also need to get more informed 
first of all, communication with the Chinese uh, government agencies. You know, if they do not really have a, a full understanding over certain specific clauses or enforcement. And the other is that they need really to uh, have more of the warnings and also prepare more of the due diligence uh, with their partners uh, in doing that. And then uh, to train their more uh, employees as how they can really respond to uh, some of the unannounced investigations, etc. So uh, this is one of the uh, way of doing business. So I think Edward will have more business to do because he's going to provide the uh, right type of legal advices to uh, companies who are really getting confused and also to prepare them with more of the due diligence, with uh, more of the compliance and mechanism that really there to preserve the uh, right type of relationship without infringing uh, into the sensitive areas identified by this new law. Mm, I believe the authorities wouldn't just, quote unquote, harass, as you would like to use, anybody, um, any foreign firm here in China, right? Why is it just a cap vision or this uh, mince? That's the name of the of the consulting yeah, Mint US. Yeah, another one. Uh, I think Bain and Company. Bain, I think yeah. also. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I mean, right. yeah, I mean, they, but to end, the one thing I want to point out is is that you know it's important to note that the raising consulting firms are not just limited to foreign firms. I know you've mentioned three very famous companies mm. um, exclusively, and Chinese companies and domestic consulting firms have also been subject to similar scrutiny. Um, yes. And I think it indicates the government's actions are not specifically targeted at foreign entities. It's not news unless you make it news by putting it in the media and 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 highlighting those things. I mean, people haven't heard a lot of, about these Chinese companies that have been raided, but there is a broader focus on enhancing overall security and regulatory compliance within the consulting industry. And I mean, that's what Dr. Leo was talking about, which has been positive for us. I mean, it does allow, I think, businesses to kind of get organized and have a framework mm. to think about it. And when I think about, again, the arch of us operating in China, I mean, there was a time in which we were paying people in cash, for goodness sakes. I mean, that would be the way that we were operating. I mean, and there wasn't a, a mechanism to pay for welfare benefits. And there wasn't, we had two different currencies, for goodness sakes. So, I mean, as the world turns and things evolve, I mean, it's, it's hard to believe that that's just been in one kind of short career that people need to kind of pay attention to that type of thing. But the increased scrutiny and regulatory measures, you know, they introduce additional complexities and compliance requirements for consulting firms. But there are also opportunities, like for our company, I mean, our organization, to be able to strengthen uh, risk management practices. We're being called upon to do that, like Dr. Leo said. And we want to show a, you know, demonstration, a demonstrative cooperation with compliance and to further build trust. I mean, as Joseph talked about earlier, I mean, this long arm of the United States has been along, around for a long, long time. It's actually called the long arm statute. I mean, mm. it's used typically within the United States, but you know, OECD, which is the regulatory compliance that financial institutions in 38 countries, you know, use in order to follow KYC, know your client and AML anti-money laundering, all come from the United States, all come from uh, anti-money laundering or long-arm statutes 
that are present in the United States. And, and Dr. Leo talked about the anti-monopoly law. That was all kind of the ballywick of the United States, which was setting its tone worldwide. And now China is participating in that as they should uh, with laws, policies, and regulations as the second largest economy in the world. And so these complexities, I think, can also be looked at as opportunities as well for businesses. It's just whether people want the headache of dealing with it. Mm. And always uh, trying to, you know, seek opportunities from uh, difficulties. But uh, like uh, Baojun just mentioned, um, China is actually facing some uh, dilemma now um, with slow economic growth. And uh, it's also trying to get more foreign investment. You know, in the first four months of this year, the actual utilization of uh, foreign direct investment was actually down from uh, the same period last year. So, um, Joseph, do you think it's it's wise for China to introduce this revised um, law now? I, I think whatever the intent of the law or how it's ultimately uh, enforced, it will certainly have a chilling effect along with many other things that have been happening in the last several years. Uh, the challenge is that China is in a bit of a pickle. On the one hand, it has uh, this principle of reciprocity, where it says, okay, if you do this to our citizens, then, then we'll consider doing the same to yours. Or if you require this from our citizens for visa application procedures, then we'll, we'll do the same for yours. That's, that's a general principle. And um, one of the problems is that it's very clear that the United States, whether we call it de-risking or decoupling or or what have you, uh, that the United States wants to go down this path, right? And China has said very clearly that they don't want to go down this path. But part of the problem is, is that uh, once you start matching tit for tat, you end up going down that path, whether you like it or not. So uh, I agree that, that there's a lot that's happening in the U.S., from the intimidation of Chinese academics and the intimidation of foreign journalists, as well as the intimidation of, of uh, Chinese uh, businesses and Chinese tourists, uh, Chinese students. All of these things uh, are a well-established trend going back. They really began to explode into view during the Trump administration, and they've continued in various ways since. So there is this concern that if you're still committed to opening up, if you're still committed to globalization, but the United States isn't, and the United States is pressuring you in ways where you might reciprocate in ways that uh, cut off, unintentionally cut off investment, which is what the U.S. really would like China to do. Uh, you know, the U.S. is trying to uh, seek foreign investment. We saw this, uh, uh, I think, very dramatically recently when uh, uh, South Korean President Yoon visited the United States and given the new uh, CHIPS legislation and the other national industrial laws that, that the U.S. Were, is, is now uh, using to um, basically discourage foreign investment from coming into China, mm. uh, but encourage it to coming into the, into the United States. Even leaving, I think when Yoon came to, to the United States, he brought $100 billion of investment and there was only $5 billion going back to Korea. So that's that's what the U.S. wants to encourage. And so if it can create these types of securitization pressures on China, where China in turn has to respond, either because uh, China is matching or because China feels that the United States is a rising threat and therefore has to be more protective of itself, that will certainly have a backlash. And above all, 
in very wealthy countries that uh, disproportionately are aligned uh, with the United States and which are more sensitive to U.S. laws uh, like the CHIPS legislation and others. So I agree that there's a general effort to sort of level up the law and to play at the same level that other countries are playing and even to respond to aggressions in kind. But uh, I think it may ultimately harm some of China's ambitions, which are quite different from the U.S. at this point. Are you suggesting that more details or specifics about the revised law are needed? Well, I, I think so. But at the same time, as I was saying, you know, there seems to be a certain two sides of it, right, that, that, that there seems to be a certain amount of uh, ambiguity mm. written into it, perhaps intentionally, because, you know, it's a fast moving field. Uh, uh, the technology is evolving quickly. There's probably tech already in place that, that people aren't aware of. So they've kept it a little wide. And at the same time, as he was saying, given it's uh, the way it's based on the old German law of the practice, uh, and he can reiterate this, is that uh, we almost have to go through some uncertain period of practicing and seeing how it works before we can really begin to know. And so in that context, without us knowing exactly how it's going to, to work or whether or not later this year, you know, if there's uh, some sort of provocative action by the U.S. towards uh, Taiwan, whether that will make China more sensitive in a way where the ambiguities uh, within the law will provide these opportunities to be uh, more assertive or, or more sensitive. It remains to be seen. Yeah, there, there might be some ambiguity, but the fields or the businesses that may be affected or may see some impact seems quite obvious to, especially, especially to, you know, to some um, business insiders. Maybe we can comb through some of those uh, industries, Ed? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with what Joseph was saying. Yeah, in businesses, I don't disagree with what Joseph's saying. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily can be limited to a certain subset of businesses. The obvious ones would be anybody who's gathering information to sort stuff out in, in financial services. I mean, that mm. could be looked at as a, as you know, gathering how many cars are going into a factory facility. Now, typically in the United States, someone who is selling a company short might hire an investigative services firm to click off how many units are coming out of a factory or how many cars are going, how many employees are there, or if they let people go. Mm. And so that's considered to be, you know, kind of, not insider information, but that's more uh, trying to sort out whether the company's doing well or not. So it could be misperceived, perhaps in the United States or here, that is some kind of uh, uh, information that is 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 being gathered that's not positive for the government. So it's hard to say where that is. Now that's an obvious one, but the less obvious is when you're dealing with running your widget company or whatever the heck it is. In China, you've got to, you know, meet the laws, policies, and regulations with regards to labor law. Mm. You take a certain amount of data and information about each of your employees, and how you deal with that information can also be subjected to data privacy and digital privacy and cybersecurity. So, you know, kind of take your pick. And again, I don't always think that the intention. And I think that everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people in the West have this intention that everything China is doing is kind of bad or not in keeping with good practices just because it's different. I don't think that necessarily that the intention is always bad. I think some of the stuff that comes out of it 
can seem bad and can seem awkward and and people can point to those things and say, well, this is a really a big miscarriage. We have those two in other countries throughout the world. But yeah, I know I, I think those people who are in certainly in um, anything online and in cybersecurity and the financial services industries, those are the obvious ones. But it's not just limited to those folks. Mm. It's just like I said, we're in a new world where people are going to have to think about those things, you know, before they embark on those things and, and whether that's a business that's going to be worthwhile. Indeed. But the returns in financial services industry are massive. I mean, and that's people want into financial services, whereas you have other people who have decided to leave China and the financial services industry um, because of the problems that they're having uh, specifically with this, and they don't feel they can meet those needs. But there will be people filling in those gaps, I believe. Right. And Bao Zheng, your take here? I think the more of the negative impact uh, it lies in the fact that uh, the promulgation of such a law and that uh, we make a whole fuss about it on the political and diplomatic side is really there to be more reciprocal and reactive or responsive uh, rather than real solid implementation part. So uh, that's something that I really observed. The other thing is that uh, it's going to instigate a higher level of nationalism and even the xenophobia because, uh, you know, people who are unhappy as, as employees in the businesses, etc., they will whistleblow. And, you know, whether uh, they really have the right type of uh, proof, that's a different story. So they feel this is something that is politically correct to do it. And so, uh, yeah. and then that can also you know, gave a sort of worry for uh, foreign employers uh, over here. And also over the past few years, you can see that a, a lot of people, they, they create a lot of noise against Tesla. Well, uh, because uh, their GPS system is there to take pictures over the Chinese uh, geographical uh, roads and the rotations, etc., and that uh, they have their operation uh, uh, in the data center outside China, and then that could be a problem. Yeah, but, but that didn't so, stop Elon Musk from investing in China or, or expand banning I mean, his the, business. The sort of, uh, the sort of uh, popular sentiment is there to be instigated towards more of the negative feeling against the foreign businesses here is definitely over there. And the other is that uh, for for research work, uh, you know, even, you know, I study law, I don't even know which part is the most sensitive one or which uh, of the gateway or which of the web page is the most sensitive ones. So this sort of ambiguity can really, you know, block people from getting into the right type of business or research. So uh, this is something that, that's really uh, negative. So yeah, That's understandable when, yeah. it, when a government introduces a, such uh, laws, not just in China. But yeah. I mean, we are doing it anyway for a long time. So right. why don't we make a whole noise about this at the moment? As you mentioned, that we are here to give people a more welcome uh, gesture to invest more in China, do uh, you know, uh, do more tourism, uh, more trade with China. So why do we make it a whole noise about it? So that's really contradictory to the general objective 
of repairing the Chinese economy onto the right track. Right, but after they straighten up, their businesses are are legal in China and have nothing to do with any espionage um, or conspiracy.、Um, They will be no, well. Most of the continuing with their business, right? That's normal. But、uh, how how they can really, you know, who is there to have the right to interpret, you know, whether、yeah. you have spawn,、uh, whether you have stepped over the boundary. So that's a problem. So uncertainty gave people a sort of coercion, so that、uh, even you know the businesses that are not really so sensitive, and then they said, okay, you know, because it is. Not very much clarified. Let's not do it. Or this partner, I have not really done the right type due diligence, etc. So I will not do business with this partner. Yeah. So that can really, you know, lose opportunities for foreign businesses. Yeah, I think、uh, that's work. yeah, that's where、uh, Ed's law firm can play a role there. You know, providing some、uh, advice. And then, the, yeah, you mentioned about this one. Actually, you know, the the peculiar thing over this dimension is that a.、Uh, You do not have open trial. There's no transparency in the whole decision process because it's connected with national secrecy. So that's a, another tricky issue. Right. They, Although I just I just want to say from a practical standpoint, I, I agree with what you're saying, Doctor Liu, 100%.、Mm-hmm. Which is, and it brings me back to the United States. So if you take a look at the United States, who's the number one, you know, whistleblower, if you will, at the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, the taxing authority. It would be disgruntled,、uh, you know, spouses, girlfriends,、uh, family members, co- competitors, right? And what I've always said, and what I've seen at least in in my practice, in, which has gone on for decades here, and in, in a pretty wide range of clientele, is that, you know, the government, contrary to what everybody believes, is largely acting in a benign capacity. I mean, there's exceptions to that certainly, and it is. Uh, disgruntled employees, it is competitors, it is uh, uh, spouses or ex-spouses or girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever that wind up using these laws to bludgeon people in、um, and and do it quite well. By the way, I mean、um, and get them to be active. I, I don't think that they're necessarily always hunting for bear and trying to close people down.、Um, I, that does happen. Don't don't get me wrong and.、Uh, But at the same time, it's not different from the United States, where people use these laws to try to mess with their competitors or or get even somehow. You're listening to the Chat Lounge. We'll be back after the break. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related: the hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. Welcome back. You're listening to the Chat Lounge, and we're discussing whether there is rising risks for foreign business people traveling to China after the introduction of the revised anti-espionage law in July. I would add two points to this. The first is there's a little bit of a disconnect in the conversation, but but first of all, I I will back to something that、uh, Dr. Liu was saying, which is when you read through the law, you see that there are provisions, articles, that、um, talk about this law and the, these values have to be、uh, broadcast, they have to be promoted in media. Chinese citizens, Chinese businesses, Chinese、uh, government agencies—everyone needs to be aware of this. 
And so there is this concern that it that uh, uh, that it could feed uh, a type of hysteria, you know. Already, and um, I'm I'm someone who does a lot of uh, uh, media. I'm a, a well-known professor, but I get asked, kind of jokingly, kind of not jokingly, and maybe Ed has had this at various points in his in his career here, you know, whether or not I'm a spy, right? And and it's you know. <laughs> If I am, I'm the worst spy in the world because you know, you know whatever I um, I say, it's usually in, in uh, promoting the Chinese government, and and then uh, and I'm doing it in media, which is you know I guess what spies are not supposed to do. But nevertheless, there, I think people you know are sort of uh, tuning into this now, especially as we've had some uh, cases recently, some high-profile cases, and and with China promoting this as a as a major concern uh, ahead of this law. Uh, coming into effect. That's that's the first point. The second point is uh, I'm really looking at this from the academic perspective, and I I can tell you that we face a lot of pressure here. Uh, I was a professor in the United States. We felt we faced a lot of pressure there, uh, a lot of uh, different forms of censorship and and control. And the concern is here because we don't know where the line is. And when you're doing academic research, you know, where, where you're trying to explain to the world, this is how the policy works, this is how Chinese politics works, this is how this, you start collecting information and you start collecting information from uh, surveys within China, uh, talking to government officials, talking to diplomats, and all of that looks like you're building information that could be used for sensitive purposes, right? And, and of course, some people do use it for sensitive purposes. Um, so I think I think uh, the, the concern is um, no one really wants to have the three gentlemen knocking on their door because, um, you know, we're not... We're not spies. We're mm. academics. I think to it's avoid not, that. not that you're collecting information. It's just where you utilize or use the information you collect, right? And uh, just to clarify um, the three uh, cases Joseph just mentioned, the, the, the law enforcement against the three um, foreign firms here in, in China, it's not they came after the introduction of the revised law. It's... Um, previously, we also got such a law, uh, anti-espionage law, passed in 2014, I think. So right. it's just. I, I was referring to a high-profile case in Shenzhen of a of a elderly gentleman who was just sentenced to prison. And and I agree with with Ed. I don't think the Chinese government is is looking to shoot itself in the foot. I don't mm. see it as an evil enterprise that's going out to try to ruin people's lives or to knock down business. Um, but that said, it's still very difficult for people on the other side, certainly uh, even for some people who have been here for a long time, but, but absolutely for people who are in the U.S. who have been subjected to these, uh, you know, these demonizing discourses that have been promulgated by Washington in Western mainstream media for the past five or six years. They really uh, have got this uh, completely uh, unrestrained negative imagination about what's going on over here. Um, and this is uh, this is heightened by the fact that you know we, we are talking about uh, this law coming into effect in the in the period when China is opening up again after the COVID controls when people haven't been here a lot of people haven't been here uh, for the past um, several years. I'm concerned that people have become disconnected from reality to such an extent that um, they're unable to really know what's happening here. But then they're getting this uh, message from the Wall Street Journal, from other sources, 
which you know indicate that there is increased risk. Now, you you mentioned Musk coming, um, and that's true, he did. But you know, Musk has the sort of uh, you know, is, is the world's richest man. He has the sort of um, ability to make sure that things are going to be okay. That uh, a smaller um, uh, a businessman or, or someone who's working on behalf of a business, uh, they wouldn't have that sort of uh, security uh, or certainty. Um, and keep in mind, uh, you know, uh, Elon Musk uh, is is a very complicated guy. I mean, he he provides satellite services to Ukraine. He he's he knows a exactly. lot of things. Exactly. You know, and he's not stopped uh, from uh, investing in China. And that's why we are doing this uh, show today. And um, last but not least, um, just to, or you can say, we're here to help those um, who are eager or have this um, intention to invest or continue invest or explore new opportunities here in China. Um, what would be your number one advice for those business people navigating uh, the Chinese market? I'll, I'll go ahead. Yeah. Okay. I have four pieces of, of advice. First, uh, make sure you have good local representation and advisors, uh, preferably partners, who you understand and who understand you and who understand China. Uh, uh, second, leave your politics at home and leave Chinese politics alone. Uh, three, don't come here looking for the old China. Don't come here looking for cheap labor. Don't expect the same sort of enthusiastic welcomes uh, that uh, uh, many enjoyed in the past. I think there was this, uh, the, the Chinese in the past were, were tended to be a little too welcoming of some people. Uh, you know, it, it was, it was uh, always uh, regarded that China was one of the friendliest places in the world uh, uh, to, to foreign visitors. And given all that's transpired, uh, that's, that's not simply the case anymore, and, and perhaps it shouldn't be. Don't come here thinking that having an American product will guarantee, or even a European market, will guarantee a welcome market. There is a lot of uh, nationalism here now, but there's also a lot of local products that are superior to what you can buy and that cost less than what you can buy from overseas producers. Uh, don't come here expecting the old uh, shady business practices. Uh, stay on the right side of uh, propriety and the law. And fourth, uh, finally, uh, if you're doing something related to tech, don't come unless you're at the cutting edge or looking for it. And if you're at the cutting edge, make sure you don't run afoul with U.S. or Chinese restrictions. Right. Um, Bao Cheng, you're the director of the Center for International Business Ethics. So, Well, I would give a more unethical advice is that try to uh, you know, build the right of contract and stipulation and shrug off your responsibility to all other parties because it's uncertain. And of course, a more positive one would, okay, you know, to build a better communication uh, report with the responsible authorities if you're able to meander through the, this whole line of decision making. Last but not least, our legal advisor here. Ed, please. <laughs> I would like to mis use the misquote of John F. Kennedy, which talks about the Chinese word for crisis, which is Wei Ji. It's, uh, you know, what he said, at least, and, and it just sounds good for Westerners who are listening to this in English. It's uh, two characters. One is danger, Wei, and the other one is Ji or Ji Hui. Mm. Um, Opportunities. So it's putting together these Chances. two. Yeah, that's opportunity. Exactly. So, so there's, there, you know, jump in, the water's warm. I mean, it's one of those paradoxical places. I mean, China and people don't want to do radio shows on this, but they, you know, they ascended to the Hague Convention uh, 
and and uh, which allows for greater uh, exchange of documentation between and judgments between different regions and there there that the ascension's taken place and the implementation is coming on November 7th there's plenty of things to have positive uh, feelings about with Dr. Leo talked about uh, you know state secret court cases uh, are not open to the public but ironically i mean almost all of the cases are online now and, and they've made this online for for the judiciary and for judicial opinions uh, of course not not for state secrets and certainly not for domestic abuse cases or or something like that like same with in the united states mm. so you know i would say jump in the waters warm um you know certainly china is is uh, in its own way and is is making a move forward it seems like it's going backwards but it's actually forward and you know the the nice thing about being here is china likes to experiment with laws policies and regulations figure out what works and then make adjustments uh from that perspective and uh it, it seemed to work until now and hopefully it'll be that way going forward And with that we come to the end of our chat. Many thanks to Edward Lehman, founder and managing director of China-based law firm Lehman Lian Shi, Dr. Liu Baocheng, director of the Center for International Business Ethics, University of International Business and Economics, and Joseph Mahoney, professor of politics and international relations, East China Normal University for sharing your brilliant views with our listeners. If you got anything to say about the topic or the show, feel free to message us. Just search Chat Lounge. You can find us on all major podcast platforms or drop us an email at cgtn.com. I'm Tian. Thank you for being with us. We'll have more chat next week. Once upon a time, in a land not so very far away, stories were told of the brave and the bold. The whole court fell silent to hear what the great warrior Mulan might ask for. Of mighty deities and powerful immortals. Immediately, the shimmering skin started to grow before his eyes of fated love and love sanctified. In dawn's golden light, New Lang said, "Marry me." Of great journeys across fantastical landscapes. So the cat and the mouse climbed on the dog's back, and the dog swam across the broad river in the company of friends and enemies and unimagined beasts. Good to see you. Of ordinary folk with tantalizing stories to tell. Heroes and heroines all. It's incredible. How did you do that? Tales of sad sacrifice and victories snatched from the jaws of defeat. Stories of the wise, the accomplished and the quick of mind. 5000 years of amazing Chinese folk tales. You'll find Chinese Folk Tales season 3 wherever you discover your favorite podcasts.